There's been a picture that's been going around the internet the last few days that has caught people a little bit off guard. This is the picture. Now, some of you may know some of the people in this picture, and some of you may know none of the people in this picture. How many of you have no idea who any of these people are? I see those hands. All right. That's not how you usually say that in a church, but I see them, all right? So these are all basketball players. These are all professional basketball players. And the guy right here in the middle is a guy named David Robinson, played for Navy several years ago, and then went and played with the San Antonio Spurs. The guy right here is Manu Ginobili, played for the San Antonio Spurs. This is Tim Duncan, who recently played for the San Antonio Spurs. You're catching on. This is Sean Elliott, San Antonio Spurs. Here's why people have been sending this picture around, okay? This guy right here is a guy named Victor Wimbayana. He's from France, and he was recently selected as the number one overall pick by the San Antonio Spurs, right? Here's why this picture has gone viral, okay? All these guys are tall. This guy, 7'1". Now, he may have, I don't know, a little secret for those that um, aren't getting older yet. He he was 7'1 in his playing days. He's probably 6'11 now. You got what I've, like, I don't know if they know this. You shrink as you get older. It happens, right? So even 6'11, all right? Uh, Tim Duncan, 6'11". Uh, this guy's not. He is seven foot five. That's pretty tall, right? So some of some of y'all seen my son around. Luke, Luke's over here. Um, I don't know if he wants to talk about it or not, but Luke's pretty tall. Y'all see that? He's pretty tall, right? Luke, Luke's somewhere around six four to six five, closer to six five. The, the guy in the middle is a foot taller than him. And here's what makes him unique and why he's the number one pick in this draft and considered by many, some have said, to be the best basketball prospect in history. It's because when he was about 10 or 11 years old, he had a coach in France who fell in love with YouTube clips of an American basketball star from 50 years ago. Pistol, Pete, Glenn got excited about that. I heard you, man. Anybody here know Pistol Pete Maravich? And Pistol Pete Maravich was a guy that knew the fundamentals of the game and made instructional videos for people. And so Victor's coach began to watch and train his guys to dribble and pass and shoot like Pistol Pete Maravich. Now, some people think that Pistol Pete Maravich is the best college basketball player of all time. Glenn Head included. <laughs> right? He had an NBA career. He made he had a million dollar contract back in the 70s. But Pistol Pete's life was not where it needed to be. Until sometime in the early 80s after he quit basketball, he came to know Christ, and he developed a relationship with a guy named James Dobson. Anybody know James Dobson? Focus on the family. Uh, that, that's James Dobson right there. And Pistol Pete and James Dobson developed a relationship, and in 1988, James convinced Pete to come to his Monday morning pickup game. 
Now, we got a Monday night pickup games that happens down in the gym, and there's some decent players that show up at that uh, event on Monday nights. I don't think Pistol Pete level has ever showed up. Now, here's the thing about Pistol Pete at this time. He had not touched a basketball, dribbled a basketball, shot a basketball in a couple of years because he had a radical transformation of his life where he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and it changed who he was and it changed his emotions. It changed, he would say, his idols fell away. But James convinced him to come play with these guys and they played one Monday morning. He walked into the gym. He, they were playing around. And this particular, this is actually a screenshot from a video. That's Pistol Pete getting the rebound. James Dobson had shot it short. It hit the front rim. Pistol Pete jumped up over everybody. I mean, this guy's got to be, I mean, Pistol Pete was about 6'3 or 6'4. This guy's got to be really tall in the video. So they're having just a good game. And he said, Dobson says, not long after this video footage, they took a water break. And he and Pistol Pete were standing around the free throw line and Dobson said to him, man, you can't give this up. This is part of who you are. This is part of your ministry. This is part of your legacy. This is part of who you are. God can use this in such a big way. And he goes, man, it does feel good to be out here. And he said, how are you feeling, man? I know you've had some shoulder issues and he had had some stuff I couldn't quite figure out in his shoulder and he had worked on that. And he said, you know what, James? For the first time in a while, I feel really good. Dobson turned to go get water. Pistol Pete turned to go the other way. And Dobson looked over his shoulder and Pistol Pete collapsed and died. That quickly. James Dobson says, now one of the realities of life is that death comes for us all and we don't know when it may happen. It's kind of a downer way to start a sermon, isn't it? But here's the reality. It is the, if the Lord doesn't come back, it is the destiny of us all. I don't know if you know this or not, but the mortality rate's pretty high. The question is, so what happens after that? Do we just fade into nothingness? Do we return again and again and again until we get it right? Do we kind of end up in some kind of eternal resting grounds? Over the next few weeks, we're going to do a series of messages about a matter of life and death. What happens after you die? And tonight, or today, we're going to talk specifically about, we're not going to be here that long till tonight, but what happens when you die? Like immediately when you die, what does that look like? And we can go to a lot of sources for that. I figured for our purposes today, we just go to Jesus. Is that all right? And so in Luke chapter 16, there's a story that Jesus tells. Now, it's interesting because it's told somewhat in the form of a parable, somewhat in the form of a story. And so we consider it something akin to like the parable. In fact, my Bible has the parable of some things that are going on of Lazarus and the rich man. Others just have the rich man and Lazarus because there's some dispute about it. Here's what I will tell you. We're not going to spend a lot of time getting into the minutia and the details of what kind of literature and genre this is because you don't care. All right. Now, here's the real reason. It doesn't really matter. The point of this story is evident from here, and it tells us about what happens after death. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man 
who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, the great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither than those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father, Abram, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, even if they, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone arises from the dead. The book of Luke is famous for something called the great reversal. The first will be last and the last will be first. The greatest of you is the one who serves. This idea that turns everything on its head, that what seems to us good and right and proper is really what's bad and that there is a flip that happens here. This story is an example of that, but it shows us a glimpse into the reality of what happens once we die. Now, we're not going to be able to, from this passage of Scripture today, delve deep into what exactly is going on in both the, the destinations that are determined by our life here on earth and our acceptance or lack thereof of Jesus Christ, but we can see some important contrast in this story. And the first thing we see is that there is a definite contrast in the life of these two men. We see that in that first verse that we saw in verse 19. It says, first of all, about the rich man. The, the word rich man there means, this is going to blow you away, he was wealthy, had a lot of money. Then it describes it for us and it gives us this understanding of exactly how rich and prominent he was. It says there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. And so here's the picture that it gives us of this man. This is a man who had absolutely everything anyone on this earth at that time period in history could desire. The word would dress there, by the way, means that it was his habit or a regular part of his wardrobe, that his normal wardrobe, just what he wore on a daily basis, was purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Now we see those first two words and we think, cool, you like purple and you like linen, big deal. We go down to TJ Maxx and get us some of that ourselves. Now, that was different in their day and time. In fact, in their day and time, they didn't have artificial dyes like we do. They couldn't just easily turn anything they wanted to a different color. When, when I was growing up, 
After my senior year of high school, I worked in at Dyersburg Fabrics where my mom was uh, working. She worked there during the summer. They would hire high school and college students to work. And so I worked at uh, Dyersburg Fabrics, and my job was to work in the dye house. And so I would go out, and I worked in the office of the dye house, literally, and would go out and check on guys and get reports and those kind of things. And there were just these huge what looked like washing machines, but they were just huge machines, and it was always about 20 degrees hotter in there than it was outside. Huge machines with vast color choices that they would work into that. We go to a paint store these days, and we just say, hey, I want this, and they show us the color. It goes, that's not exactly what I had. I had this color, and we can get it down to the most minute detail of the color that we want. In their day, in the day that Jesus is telling this story, they didn't have all those options. And one of the most expensive colors to own was purple. And here's why. The way you got purple dye for clothing was to harvest it from several sea snails called murexes that had purple mucus. So the way that you got it was from a sea snail snot. And you had to harvest hundreds of these to get it. It was worth its weight in precious metals. In fact, later, not during the time of Jesus, but later it was made that the only people that could wear this particular color that the original language mentions here were, the, were for a while Caesar and the people directly under him and eventually it became only Caesar himself could wear purple. This was the fanciest of fancy that you could get. And underneath that it says he wore linen, which the word is used there is a specific type of linen only developed in Egypt that was considered the finest undergarment you could wear. So it's like a t-shirt with a purple robe over it. It was... The finest of the fine. And Scripture says he made it his habit. His wardrobe consisted of that. Then it says he feasted lavishly every day. The words used here are some of the same kind of words used just a couple of chapters later about a son that returns home. Do you remember that story, the prodigal son, right? He comes home and his dad says what? Go out and kill the fattened calf and bring it in. Because in their day and time, even the wealthiest of the wealthy could not eat meat every day. And he says that this man in this story not only wore the finest garments from the most exclusive designers, not only had wealth that he could prominently display... He was so rich that he had a banquet daily that compared to the one that would be told about in the parable of the prodigal son. He was rich. When I was growing up, there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. How many of you all remember that show, right? This one would have been featured on that show prominently. Compared to him is a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, 
part of the reason people have a difficulty whether this is a parable or a story or what this is is because in all the other parables people aren't named. And here we have a name which is a couple of things. It's Lazarus. We know another Lazarus, right? Lazarus who Jesus would raise from the dead and people still wouldn't believe him. Ironic. But we also have the meaning of his name. The name Lazarus means God has helped. And to hear them tell this story, they would be like, and how has God helped? It says the poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, literally is clothed with sores. So you've got one man clothed with the finest purple and linen you could find, and another one clothed with sores. Lying at his gate. The, the word there literally is not lying. It is thrown at his gate, as dropped at his gate, dumped at his gate. He can't even get there. He is covered probably in something like leprosy is what Jesus had in mind as he tells this story. Covered with sores, lying at his gate, and he longed to be filled with even the scraps of what fell from the rich man's table. And while he's lying, thrown at the gate of this rich man, not even having anything to eat, clothed in sores, he gets no comfort at all. In fact, the dogs who we have to get out of our mindset, the picture that we have of dogs in our society as beloved pets that we want to carry with us everywhere. They were the, the dogs were scavengers that would come and eat. And these dogs are licking his wounds almost as if they are preparing for his death to eat his body. That's a little bit of a contrast, right? A man who has everything you could possibly want. And a man who has absolutely nothing. So Jesus starts this story with saying these two are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. There is a contrast in their life. But then he does this. He says, notice the contrast in eternity. So they both die because I don't know whether you know this or not. Your wealth can buy you lots of things. It cannot buy you immortality. It cannot buy you true happiness. And the contrast in these two in eternity is seen in their destinations once they die. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. One day, the poor man died and was carried away. And the rich man died and was buried. They end up in two separate conditions. And in theme with what Luke has taught us about the great reversal throughout, he reverses it here. By the way, it's important always to understand the audience that the story is being told to in these parables and these stories. 
And in this particular story, the audience seems to be the Pharisees who had been around and had been talking. And Jesus has called them in just verses prior to this, lovers of money, people that care about reputation and position and wealth and money and value that and see that as what God has blessed. That if you're living your life with wealth and you're living your life in comfort and you're living your life with power, then that is what God has blessed. And if you're living your life on the street with sores covering your body, you must be cursed and condemned by God. And so he's telling this story to them to say what you value, what you hold forth, what you care about are things that don't show blessing. Once you die, none of that matters. And look at the comparison of these two. For one, you've got angels carrying him away. The understanding there is that nobody on earth cared about his death, but the angels of God did. In Scripture, it talks about that when one sinner rejoices, they throw a party in heaven. When this week, and you're going to hear about camp, and I wasn't at camp, and I'm so thankful for Noah um, and Hannah and Bob Lloyd and um, the York family, Ben and Patricia, that go as chaperones on those trips. One of the traditions they have at Centrifuge at the end of the week is that those that have accepted Christ go by and ring a bell, signifying that their life has been changed. And I couldn't help but think, I know they rang a bell at the end of that closing celebration because of what God had done that week, but the moment that those campers stepped from death into life where Jesus Christ saved them, they threw a party in heaven for each and every one of them. There wasn't a bell ringing. There were trumpets blasting and bells ringing all over heaven. And it says that when the death of one that God loves, the death of one who's accepted what Jesus has done, the death of this one, that they are rushed to the side and they take him away. The the idea is that he was welcomed. He was brought. He was rushed into heaven. And it says when the rich man looks up, he sees this man being at the side, or if you've got an older translation, the bosom of Abraham. And the idea there is that anytime they had a banquet, anytime they had any kind of, of important event, they would lay the table out and the guest of honor would be standing there or sitting at the thing, kind of on their side, leaning and eating. We've talked about this when we talk about the, um, the, the Last Supper. When Jesus is there, they're reclining at the table. So they're kind of leaning on their thing, eating there. And whoever was closest or nearest or, or in the place of prominence with him, who was next in line, was the one that would lay on their side or right next to him, right up with them. And he says that when he stops and looks, that this rich man looks up and the most revered person of their faith, the person that started their faith, the founding father, The George Washington of the Israelite faith is Abraham. That's not really right. It's really that George Washington is the Abraham of our nation, right? Because Abraham's greater in religious history. And he sees this man who he had to see thrown at his gate, covered in sores. The least of the least is at the place of honor at the eternal banquet. Now this picture here, and honestly, Jesus 
does not give us a whole lot to think about or to know about what heaven is going to be like. And we're going to talk about that some in the series. I don't want to focus on that today, but I will tell you this, that what you can be assured of about heaven is that heaven is a place where it's all that an all-good, all-loving God desires for you It's all that an omniscient God could design for you, and it's all that an omnipotent God could prepare for you. We have to remember, I I can't tell you exactly what heaven's going to be like. I don't know if if there will be buildings, what kind of buildings there will be, what they will look like of the buildings. I know we talk about in the John 14, it talks about I go prepare a place for you. If I don't go prepare a place, then I wouldn't leave. I'm going to come back and get you and take you there. And people talk about, is it a mansion? Is it a room in a mansion? Here's what I will tell you. It is greater than anything you've ever experienced in your life. We can't imagine. That's the way it describes. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. The reason there aren't tons of descriptions of what heaven is like is because we don't have words to capture how awesome it is. And so when the biblical writers start writing about it or they get a vision of it, they're like, it's kind of like, or or it's similar to, it's almost like um, you've had experiences before in your life, you've seen things, you've witnessed things, you've been a part of things, that when you talk to someone that hasn't and you try to describe it to them, you have to compare it to something that they might understand. And so the writers are like, "I, I, I can't really describe it to you, but it's sort of like this. Here's what I know about heaven. God's been preparing a place for you since the foundation of the world. And it's going to be awesome. Billy Graham was on Johnny Carson one time. And Johnny asked him, said, Billy, I just need to know one thing before I decide whether I want to go to heaven or not. Is there going to be golf in heaven? And Billy Graham's response to him was great and classic Billy Graham. He said, Johnny, if it requires golf for you to enjoy heaven, golf will be there. Now, here's the truth. When you step into eternity, I don't care how much you love golf, it ain't going to matter to you. I'm not saying we might not knock around the links. It might be boring. Everybody hits the shot in to start with, you know, hole in one all over the place. I mean, kind of a bad. The point is, it's going to be greater than we can ever imagine. And that's what, in this story, Lazarus, the poor, hungry, sore-filled person is experiencing the other one is experiencing eternal torment and there's no easy way for us to talk about this but it's reality jesus talked about heaven much more than i mean talked about hell much more than he talked about heaven because he wanted people to understand that there are consequences to denying who He is. He has come with grace and mercy that is offered to us and in our denials of Him, those that would deny Him and deny them until the day that they die will spend eternity separated from Him. And the picture we have of this man is not a good one. Verse 23 says, Being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abram a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, Have mercy on me and send Lazarus the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in agony in this flame. 
Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad, but now he's comforted here. There's the great reversal, and you are in agony. By the way, it doesn't need a lot of translation from the original language. Agony means sheer, absolute pain and suffering. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to come here can't, and neither can we go to you. Father, I beg you, send them to my father's house. I have five brothers. And Abram said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have all the testimony. He says, but if someone comes from the dead, he said, even if he does, they won't be persuaded. So if heaven is an all-good, all-loving God's, plan for us, an omniscient God's design for us, an omnipotent God preparing for us, then we need to understand what hell is as well. And the first thing we understand is that hell has real physical torment. It is sensory misery. Now, I don't know how all that works, physicality there. I don't know if, the, I know that the scripture talks about our resurrected bodies. I don't know if there's going to be a, a resurrected type of body for those that are in hell that is the opposite of ours. But what I know is that in this story and in other places, it talks about sensations and feelings and torment and pain and heat and fire. I mean, we joke about heat and fire. In the last few days around this place, we have joked about how hot it is. I mean, right now I'm sweating profusely here because it's, you know, jokingly 120 degrees in here, but it's not. It's warm, but not compared to the eternity that is there. And I don't know whether that means actual fire like we understand it or something different, but there is physical torment that is happening there. But it's not just physical torment. It's a place not only of sensory misery, it's a place of emotional misery. In in our society, in our culture, sometimes hell becomes the punchline. People say things like, you know, I don't want to go to heaven, all my friends are going to be in the other place. Or they make jokes about kind of, well, we just have a party down there. Here's what I can tell you for sure is not happening in hell, is a party. There is emotional isolation and loneliness. I, uh, in researching this week, I, got, I went down the, the Pete Maravich trail. My dad used to talk about Pete Maravich. When I was growing up, uh, I had a group of friends. We played basketball on the weekends, and, and we all had different favorite college teams, and we would pick the favorite player that we from our college teams that we wanted to represent. And I had an LSU fan, and he always picked Pistol Pete. And I always felt bad because I knew how great Pistol Pete was. And I was Tennessee, and Ernie Grunfeld didn't sound as cool as Pistol Pete Maravich. So I went down the Pistol Pete Maravich trail, and I ended up watching his testimony to a group of people that Glenn Campbell, of all people, had got him to come give his testimony to. And in the midst of that, he says, here's the reality. I don't know why, I can't remember why he started talking about hell. He said, here's the reality. There are things in hell, or excuse me, there are things that aren't in hell that we just take for granted every day. He said, like light, goodness. And then he said, 
relationships. Emotional misery because there are no relationships in hell. Sensory misery, emotional misery, spiritual misery. You realize you are separated from God. Now the story, he looks up and he sees Abraham and he understands Abraham as the patriarch of the faith. And from everything we can gather from this story, especially because of the audience that he's telling it to, these are people that thought they knew and thought they got it and thought he was, he thought he was on board with what needed to happen. And there's a realization in that moment that he had missed out and that he is going to spend eternity out of God's will, out of God's presence. There is a spiritual misery of understanding what you have missed. And here's the last and the most tragic of all of these is it's an eternal misery. The way that it says here is that there is a chasm that cannot be overcome and that it is set upon your choice. I read this week about C.S. Lewis who was passing in a cemetery and there was a gravestone that had a thing that said, here lies an atheist all dressed up with nowhere to go. C.S. Lewis in his writing responded, oh, that he wished that were so. Because eternity is a long time to be wrong. What happens when we die? The moment we die, whether that is now, whether that is six years from now, whether that is six minutes from now, whether that is six decades from now. The moment we die, we end up in one of two eternal, forever destinations. We either end up in the presence of God in the greatest place we could ever imagine or we end up separated from God in the most horrific place that we could ever imagine. So what do we do with all that? We're going to go from least important to most important in this. Just three, three things for us to do as applications in the midst of this. And the first, which is a point of this narrative, a point of the parable that comes before it, and that is a section in this unit, is that we need to invest material wealth for spiritual return. We talked about that last week with kids and our investment in them as parents, but in general, as people, we need to invest our material wealth for spiritual return. Now, there's some idea in this passage he talks about, don't you remember this man that was outside your gate and you passed him over and you didn't help him? Jesus talks about whatever you've done for the least of these, you have also done for me. And again, that's not earning salvation by doing that. What it is, is demonstrating that God has changed our lives and we care about the least of these and we do things that are not going to bring us material return back, but bring us spiritual return. Our, our group from, from Brazil should have just touched down. They should be back, in the, back here in Nashville. We know they're on the plane. We know the plane's coming. I haven't checked, obviously. I've been doing this, whether they've landed. This week, while they were in Brazil, they saw 76 people come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's awesome. While they were there, a local newspaper, online newspaper, I, I suppose, wrote a story, an article about the work that has gone on from our church, Inglewood Baptist Church, and First Baptist Orlando are the three primary churches that have worked in Porto Segura since 2005. And I, I shared last week, if you were here, with some of the ideas by that and stories behind that, but they gave some actual numbers, and it's just amazing that this church has been part of investing in reaching people. And so, since 2005, over 80,000 people have been served in some way by the churches that are on mission in Porto Segura. 80,000 people. Since 2005, over 20,000 kids have had shoes given to them free of charge, most of them the first pair of real shoes they've ever had in their life. 20,000. Some of you have been a part of that. Our church has been a part of that. Even if you've never stepped foot in Brazil, you have been a part of that as our church. And the number we don't have, but is somewhere in the thousands is the number of people whose lives have been eternally changed and have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is what our mission and our goal as a church and as people should be. This week, Noah said three people came to faith. VBS this summer. Kids coming to faith. Center kid in a couple of weeks. Kids coming to faith. Growing in their faith. Investing material wealth into things that will bring spiritual return. How are you doing that in your life? The second thing that is important from this passage of Scripture is that we need to learn or we need to realize that we need to share Jesus before it's too late. Isn't it interesting to you that the first thing that this man asks after he says, can I just have like a tip of water? And some people speculate, so this isn't gospel truth, but some people speculate that what he's doing is trying to get his mouth wet enough to ask for the next request. And the next request he says is, so can you send somebody to my brother's to tell them so that they don't end up here. It has been said before, it is ironic that one of the most passionate evangelists in the New Testament is in hell. In this story. He is saying, if, Jesus is saying through this story, if the people in hell knew they were going, they would never choose that destination. And the call is, for us. Now he says they've got the prophets and they've got Moses. They've got all that stuff. They can, they can understand. The truth is we live in a world where there are people that don't have prophet and the Moses and that don't have Moses that don't have people sharing their faith. And we live among neighbors that have you living beside them. They're not unreached because you're there. But are you sharing your faith with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, with the people in our community? We think we have forever and we don't. And then here's the most important application for this passage, and then we're done. Make sure that you know, that you know, that you know your eternal destiny with God. You see, to be here today and to hear this message and decide not to follow Jesus 
is a hurdle that you have to jump over in order to end up in hell. And when you get to that moment, your church membership isn't going to matter. Your church affiliation and denomination isn't going to matter. Your good works aren't going to matter. When you get to that point that determines whether you spend eternity in a place designed by, prepared for you by an almighty, omniscient God who is all good and all loving, preparing a place for you to spend eternity with Him. The the thing that determines whether you go there or to a place that is more horrendous than we can imagine is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you saved? Have you accepted Him as your Savior? Do you have a relationship with Him? To walk out of here today, if you don't and you choose not to, you choose to walk out, is an opportunity that you have missed. And it could be an eternal decision. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment for your will to be done on earth that is in heaven. I pray, Lord, if there are those that aren't saved, that aren't in that right relationship with you today, that have never accepted you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would convict them right now. You would make them uncomfortable. They would realize their need. I pray, Lord, that they would be brought from death into life. Lord, I pray for people here today that have loved ones, that have friends, that have neighbors, that have co-workers. And they know that they're not safe. Lord, I pray that you would give them the wisdom to understand how to impact their lives, to share their faith, knowing that it's up to you for the results, Lord, but we pray that you'll give us the boldness to share. And Lord, you pray that you'll give us opportunities to see how and where to invest whether tithing to this church, investing in mission projects, sending people on trips, Lord, what it looks like to invest our material wealth for spiritual return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.